Father, this is your, your word to us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have uh, an acceptance and a willingness and an excitement that you are speaking to us, God. That, that's a miracle in and of itself. And, Lord, what we're going to read about you today, Lord, can change us forever. And, Lord, as believers, we recognize we're already a new creation, but, God, we need to be reminded of truths that give us uh, God, that tenacity and that endurance and that strength to continue going forward. We need to remember what you've done and who you are. And so, Lord, we thank you. And I pray, God, that this morning we would be able to retain and understand these three things. Lord, if we walk away, that we would understand these three things, especially that we have been rescued. Lord, that we have been redeemed and that we have been forgiven. And Lord, if we walk away with a remembrance of that, then we will have gained so much. Especially this time of year, Lord, just looking at you and realizing that it's not about, it's not about the busyness. It's not about the things that we need to do. It's about us being rescued, redeemed, and forgiven by God. And so, Lord, strengthen us in your word this morning. Prepare our hearts to receive from you, Lord, something that, Lord, gives our lives value. And that's only found in you, Jesus. So do this work in us. Fill us with your spirit. Give us a receptive heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thomas Bilney was an Englishman who was martyred in the 16th century. And um, amongst other martyrs at that time, he was a lesser known martyr. Um, And he described this when he became saved. He said that when he read that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, it was like the dawn breaking on a dark night. He said that the light of Scripture and the truth of God's Word was like the dawn breaking on a really dark night. And, and I think that that idea is something that kind of takes us to the next thought that wherever grace is not, there's darkness. Wherever the grace of God is absent, there's darkness in our lives. And a lot of times as we're going through things, we'll start feeling really hollow and really weighed down and really dark and, and even depressed. And, and we have to recognize that we are we are not allowing God's light and his grace to shine on that area of our lives. We're not allowing him to deal with something. We're not letting him get heart deep with us. And it even reminds us in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2, it says this, For look, darkness will cover the earth and total darkness the peoples, but the Lord will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. The Lord will shine over you. Wherever God is, light is present. And as Paul stated in this letter to the Colossians, God has enabled, he said, to the church and thereby to us, enable us to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light, who live in the light. It's like that song, you know, we were at a worship conference earlier this year and um, Brandon B. busts out and he goes, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to try. And he starts playing In the Light by DC Talk. You guys remember that song? He starts ripping this song. I was like, oh, I love this song. And more than I love the song style and everything, I love what it says. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. You know, I want to shine like the stars in the heavens. I want the Lord to be my light and to be my salvation. And it's like all I want is to be in the light. You know, I always hear DC Talk singing in the background, you know, with with me. And I sound really good because I'm singing with them at that moment. But, you know, like that's the whole point is I want to be in the light with the Lord. I want to be in the light with him. And in Jesus, we've been given a light by which to live and by which to die. When you think about it in that sense, it's not just a light to live with, it's a light to, to also pass on with. And, and that's how the martyrs viewed things, and that's why Thomas Bilney was just something that popped into my head as I was thinking about this. For those of, the, of us in this room, we're concentrating on living in the light, 
right? We would be considered amongst the living this morning, most of us. And so we, we are wanting to live in the light. We're wanting to walk in a way that honors God in the light. And are we doing that well? Are we doing that well? Are we walking and living as people in the light? What does that mean? John reminds us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. It's a powerful message when you think about what that all entails. Just those simple verses, those three verses in 1 John, talking about our fellowship with him not being complete or not being proper when we're in, do- when we're in darkness, when we're walking in darkness. We're lying. We're not practicing truth. We're separating ourselves from God. And it says if we walk in the light as he himself is in light, we have fellowship with one another. Realize walking in the light means you're in fellowship with God. And then we have fellowship with one another when we're doing that first. It doesn't go the other way around. And a lot of times we're trying to figure out why we're not in fellowship with each other, and it's because we're not in fellowship with God. We start with him, because if we walk in the light with him, fellowship with God, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we all know the verse that follows after that in 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this confession, this constant coming to the Lord and saying, I don't want to be a liar. I want to be in the light. I don't want to be someone who's living in darkness. And and this is something that we have to come to as Christians over and over again and never forget that the gospel is just as important for us as believers as it is for the lost. We still need to hear it. We still need to hear it regularly that Jesus came to save sinners, not to condemn, but to save. And so when we sin, I, I don't know what it's like, for you, but when you're in the world, you're not as aware. You're not as aware of your sin and your failure. You ever like get in, you get saved, and you look back and you go, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. You're more aware when you're with the Lord, the light shining on your inadequacies. But when we, when we are in the world, we're less aware of our sin. God makes us more and more aware of the things that we're struggling with because he wants to root those out and deal with them. And so when we realize that we are sinners who have been saved by Jesus, when we fail as believers, a lot of times condemnation comes quickly. Condemnation comes quickly because we know that we shouldn't be doing these things. We're aware of them now. When we do them, we get frustrated. It's like, Paul, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. He's like, you, know, you can feel his, his angst, you know, in that moment. He's like, it's driving me crazy. Like, thank God for Jesus. Thank the Lord for Jesus. And so when we think about Jesus and we think about his mission to save us, his mission was to fulfill the Father's plan, right? And this, these are things that we need to remember. Jesus' mission was to fulfill the Father's plan. It was a plan to save us. And with that in mind, I want to pick back up where we left off in Colossians chapter 1 last week because now we're going to continue on. We're going to talk about being rescued. We're going to talk about being redeemed. And we're going to talk about being forgiven. And these are important things that the church has, has to remember always and never forget. So let's pick up. We're just going to read two verses in Colossians 1 this morning. And we'll see what the Lord has for us here. He says this. He, speaking of God the Father, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption 
the forgiveness of sins. I mean, it's just, it, it's just a, you know, Colossians is a sucker punch. You know, it's like, oh, it's just, it's so good. It's so good all the time. Just as God delivered his people, and I want us to think about it in this light, how many times do we read about God delivering his people or rescuing his people in the Old Testament? I mean, all throughout, right? Whether you're reading in Exodus, whether you're reading in Numbers, whether you're reading in Leviticus, whether you're reading in, you know, Judges especially, we see that cycle just go over and over again where, you know, the people get into sin and here, here they go. They start crying out to God. God provides a, a person to step up and to lead them and to rescue them and they fall back into sin. And it's almost like just an elongated version of what we go through on a daily basis almost. You know, this struggle with sin, this back and forth, and like I'm, I, I feel like God frees me from something only for me to fall or, or struggle with something else. And just as God delivered his people throughout the Old Testament and he rescued them from slavery, so from our sin, Jesus has rescued us. We understand that, I think. I think we get that. Christ has rescued us from our sin. And it's powerful to look at some of the examples in the Old Testament and to see God's rescue and even the language that's used. If you look at Exodus chapter 6, it'll be on the screen behind me, verses 6 through the beginning of verse 7. It says, Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. That's just like this possession and protection and rescue from danger and slavery and oppression, all of these things that we long for. I want to be free of that stuff. And he says this to his people in Exodus, he says, I'm literally going to do this for you. And he did. We know that he did. We read the rest of the story. But the imagery of rescue reminds us when we see this in Colossians chapter 1, the imagery of that rescue should remind us of the Old Testament themes and, and remember that it's an amazing thing that God has done for us to bring us into this picture that we understand what that rescue is like because God too has rescued us. He rescued his people and that's why we, it's so good to read the Old Testament to see all these reminders of God being faithful. When was God unfaithful in the Old Testament? I'm glad that no one raised their hand. Oh, I think of a spot. No, there's nothing there. God was always faithful throughout the Old Testament. And so when we read his promises to the church in the New Testament, do we take that and apply and go, that's absolute. He will always be faithful. I can trust him. He's never failed. How many of us are struggling on a daily basis with trusting him to provide? With trusting him to follow through with something that we know he said he's going to do? If God is called, if God is, if God has put a calling on the life, he equips us and takes us out and sends us out. We talked about being equipped last week in the prior section in Colossians. God equips us to walk worthy. He equips us to walk in a way that's worthy. And are you letting him? Because you're like, I don't feel equipped. I don't feel like I'm walking worthy. I feel like I'm struggling in the darkness all the time. Well, it, we, it's really simple. Is that an us problem or is it a God problem? Is God being unfaithful or is there something that I need to adjust? And we need to be honest about that with ourselves and come to him willingly and say, do what you need to do. It's a very scary thing to pray the prayer of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, isn't it? Search me, God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. How many of your thoughts do you not want God to see? How many of you are willing to have your thoughts broadcast on the screen right here and it has your name underneath and it just starts running your thoughts live, you know, in live action? No, thank you. Right? None of us wants that, and we're asking God, you need to search me and know my thoughts. Why? Because we want him to lead us in the way that's everlasting. 
We want him to change us. And see, God doesn't just rescue us from our sin. He rescues us for sanctification as a preparation. He is going to continue working in us. Our salvation is sure, but our maturity and our growth is what we're working towards. And we share, as we read in the last verse from last week's text in verse 12, we share in the inheritance of his people. We share in the inheritance of life as Gentiles, as Americans. Like, I'm no Gentile. Yes, you are. Most of us in this room are Gentiles, I think. Um, but, you know, we, we have been saved and we've been grafted in. And that's a very unique thing if you know your Old Testament culture, if you know your ancient literature. That's a very unique thing. That doesn't happen. The only one that can do that is God. We are those who share the inheritance of his people. And as we think of the promises God made to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we can look at the promises that he's made to us in Christ and know that he has not only saved us, but will redeem us. He will rescue us, just as he said. Remember that God is faithful, always. Remember that his faithfulness has not been left merely to statements and proclamations. God hasn't proven himself faithful by making, by making just really bold pronouncements or really bold statements. God has proven himself faithful through action. He has proven it in so many ways. And the greatest of these was Jesus' ultimate declaration of love and rescue that he made on the cross. It is finished. I paid it in full right here. God couldn't have made a greater statement or a greater sacrifice to rescue us. That was the ultimate statement. There's no more powerful, perfect way. And it's important that we remember that our rescue wasn't free. We have been rescued, but our rescue wasn't free. It was costly. And, and I just, as I was thinking about this, you guys, I was thinking about how difficult it would be if I put myself in God's shoes, even as a finite person and not an infinite God who is holy and pure and loves justice and has always been just and always been faithful. But even in my shoes, can you imagine the Father's love for us as the Son hung on the cross and endured the mockery of the crowd? Could you have watched your child go through that and not act? If you knew that what they were being punished for was innocent, they were innocent of this crime, watch them hang there and not do something. Not jump in and, and change something. Not, not release them or, or do anything that you could. And as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him, Matthew 27, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. They're mocking the father as he's watching the son die for us. And he didn't move a muscle. He didn't change course. That's how much he loves you. He loves us that much. He didn't change course when he had every reason to. They were denying his power. They were denying his acceptance of the son. How many times did Jesus say, I and the father, we are one, right? How important is that to the Godhead to understand the theology of the Trinity, to know that they are one? And then we look at this, and they're mocking that relationship. They're mocking that fellowship between God. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. If God's really connected to this guy, let him rescue him. 
Not only could the son have come off the cross himself, but the father resisted. The father didn't bow to that. Why? Because he loves you. Because this was the only way to save you. It was that valuable to him. You are that valuable to him. He loves us that much. Jesus refused to rescue himself so that he could rescue us. And the father refused the taunting so that his provision for us, Jesus, could die so that we could be saved. I don't think that we can say it enough or think about it enough or slow ourselves down and quiet our minds enough to fully understand what that means to us as human beings. That God loves us so much that he sent his only son that if we would just believe in him, we won't perish, we'll have it everlasting life. And the next part of that verse in John three seventeen, he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that we might be saved through his name, through belief. Never forget these truths. Christians, we have to remember this always, not just all throughout the year, not just on Easter when we celebrate resurrection. What about Christmas when we come to the manger? What about Christmas when we remember that God became a baby that he humbled himself to that point in order to save us. Our liberation from the domain of darkness is not to be thought upon lightly, nor is our new standing. It says he transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Uh, In the ancient world, when one empire was um, victorious over another, it was custom to take the population of de- the defeated country and transfer them or transport them into your land. And so you would take the, the men, the women, the children, and, and you would take them to the conqueror's land. Thus, the people of the northern kingdom, you'll remember they were taken away to Assyria, and the people that, were, that fell in the southern kingdom were taken away to Babylon. And, and some people remain back, and there's, there's an interesting theological connection there. But the point here being is that when you think of this, as they would think about the language that Paul was using, this made sense in that culture. When someone came and conquered a city or, or an area, they would take the people and transfer them to their own land. They'd take them into their own land if they didn't wipe them out. And so the people would connect this, and Paul says that God has transferred Christians to his own kingdom. He's conquered us. But the way that he does this is so different the way that mankind does it. God conquered us with love and sacrifice. And then he transfers us into the kingdom of his son. Notice this. Don't miss this. He transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. The son he approves of. The son whose sacrifice was acceptable to him. And so he transfers us into this kingdom. We can never forget that we're not acceptable to God otherwise than through Christ. We are not acceptable to God otherwise through Christ. That's how he wins the victory, right? That's how he transfers us is through Jesus. There's no other way for us to be an acceptable offering. There's no other way for us to be acceptable to him. He truly is the way, the truth, and the life. It's almost like Jesus meant it when he said that in John 14, 6. You know, that's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. You know, and, and, and I, I, I've talked to so many teenagers like, yeah, but there's, there's so many people that say there's another way. I'm like, well, they can say that, but if they say they believe in the Bible, this is, this is solid. This is ironclad. Jesus said there is no other way. I am the way. You know, and, and as, the, as <laughs> the guy tattooing me once was like, well, I just believe all rivers flow to the same ocean, you know, and that, that, that all the religions will just eventually come into one thing. And, and I've told this story many times, like, this guy's got a needle in my arm. Do I disagree with him now? 
do I start like sharing with them now? Like, what's the right thing to do? So I did. I started sharing with them. He didn't like it. And that's why it says Sandra on my arm. I'm just kidding. No, but <laughs> all the kids, show me that Sandra tattoo. No, I'm just kidding. So you guys, here's the thing. Jesus is the way. He's the only way that we are acceptable to the Father. And one theologian wrote this, nor can it be doubted, speaking about Paul in this sense, nor can it be doubted that Paul had it in view to censure indirectly the mortal enmity that exists between men and God until love shines forth in the mediator. That's a lot of words in that. L- let me just simply state it, because I love the way he said it, but, but here's what that says simply. Paul is pointing out the aggressive standing of us as enemies against God before Jesus. We were in aggressive stance of enmity with God before Jesus stepped in. We were aggressively against him. We were standing against him. In the domain of darkness, we stand as the enemies of God. And Jesus saved us from that. He becomes our mediator. And so the question has to, has to come to our mind, church. Are we, are we okay with the domain of darkness? Have we bought into being a part of that? Are we comfortable with darkness? Or does it disgust us? Not in a way that we shove people out of our way. We want to reach out to people that are, that are in that. But, but do we still want to associate with the domain of darkness, with the past, with sin? Are we still trying to connect with sin? Is it something that we wouldn't even look upon if we could have our own way now that we understand how blessed it is to know the love of God through Jesus? Now that I know the love of God through Christ, does it just appall me to think about sin and the old life? Do we gaze back at Sodom and forget that it's filth? Do we gaze back at Sodom and miss the things from back there? Maybe some of the old ways, some of the old things we used to do. Do we look back and forget that it was enmity with God? That his salvation pulled us out of there. That that was saving us from destruction. That's a powerful picture if you think about it. You know, Lot and his, and his daughter's running and his wife stops and turns back. It's funny because it says she looked back or went back. It's, it's not like she glanced over her shoulder and God's like, pillar of salt, that's it, you messed up. There was a longing her heart was in the city. Some theologians would even say she was turning to go back. She wanted to turn around and go back to where she was. You see, we can't love the world and love God at the same time. No man can serve two masters. And so when we think about the domain of darkness, we think about what he's pulled us out of church, there needs to be a separation from these things. There needs to be a break from this stuff. And we need to be very careful to hold each other accountable in this way. Our enemy will seek to draw us into the domain of darkness by feigning happiness or promising fulfillment of desire. It's a lie. How how many of you have felt drawn by the enemy since you've been saved to go back to sinning again? The ones who didn't raise their hand just aren't aware. (laughs) Like, I don't think so. I don't have any desire for this. Oh, stop it. You have flesh. Of course we do. We understand what this feels like, right? Were you drawn back to it because it looked disgusting and smelled bad? We're drawn back because it looks good. It smells nice. It's tantalizing. A temptation has to be something that you want, that you're longing for. And so recognize that your enemy is cunning. 
I was reading in a, I'm reading a book right now that's really good, and, and the author said this at the beginning of one of the chapters I read this last week. He said, I wish that Satan was guilty of the sin of laziness. He goes, he's the master of all other sins, but laziness isn't one of them. Why? Because Satan isn't resting. He's not resting when it comes to your soul. And if Satan can't have your soul, if that's in Christ, do you know what he's going to go after? He's going to distract you. He's going to diminish you, and he's going to try and render you useless in your mission. He's going to try and get you so distracted that you're ineffective. If he can't have your soul, he'll at least make you ineffective. Satan isn't lazy. That startled me. I was like, Ugh. you know, you just think about how Satan is, is relentless. He's relentlessly coming after us. Don't buy into his lies. Don't, you know, C.S. Lewis did a really good job of this with um, one of the boys in, in, uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, what was the name of Edmund, right? Edmund and wanting what? That Turkish delight, right? Favorite thing in the world. Tasted so good. What happened? It led to his slavery and a very costly sacrifice to save him, right? That's us. That's us. Don't give in. That price has already been paid. That victory has already been won. Don't go back to that life. Don't let the enemy fool you. By the way, the two things that we know this, we need to hear it, two things to prevent that. Stay in your word, stay in prayer. Those things sharpen the sword so that you can fight. If you're going into the battle every day without praying, without staying in the word, you are going in with a dull blade, if you could say you even have one at all. We, through prayer, sharpen the sword to go to battle every day. You must sharpen. You have to be ready for this. The enemy is not resting. Run harder towards the light in moments of temptation. And the first thing that I think of is Joseph. You know, when we're starting to get drawn back into that domain of darkness, think about Joseph. It wasn't worth the overcoat. You know, Potiphar's wife, come sleep with me. What does Joseph do? He keeps saying no, keeps saying no, keeps saying no. And then finally, temptation just grabs hold of his coat. But notice this, she didn't have hold of him. She only had the coat. What did Joseph do? Have it and took off running, right? Run the other way. Better to be thrown in jail as a righteous man than to give in to temptation. It is better to be thrown in jail. It is better to be physically hindered than to give in to temptation. Because physically hindered is temporary. Giving into temptation can destroy the soul. And as believers, we recognize this. We go, listen, I belong to the Lord, but when I give into temptation, what does it do? It renders you useless. It renders us useless. It separates us from God. Never forget the cost of your rescue. Never forget that the Lord paid a great price to save us, to rescue us out of that domain. And if we understand the cost, if we understand the kind of love that God has for us, where would the desire even come from to want to go back? When we look at the cross and realize what Jesus did, why would we ever even consider going back to darkness? It's because we've forgotten. It's because we're not looking at Jesus in that moment. We're only looking at ourselves. We're only looking at our our own desire. Church, we know this from experience. We've all felt that. He continues on. He says, don't forget that the Lord has rescued you, and don't forget the Lord has redeemed you. Verse 14, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's an easy Bible verse for you to memorize. You know, people are like, I'm just terrible at memorization. I'm not asking you to memorize a whole chapter of the Bible. Memorize Colossians 1.14. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I didn't have to look at it. 
you know, it's, it, it's very easy to remember, but think about what you learn there. Think about what you gain there. You understand redemption and you understand forgiveness. Two of the most important words for us to understand as Christians because of the cost that came along with those things. This word redemption was derived from a Latin root that means to buy back, to purchase back. They would use it in terms of slavery oftentimes. Um, it means the liberation of any possession, object, or person, usually by payment of a ransom. Somebody is entrapped or enslaved, and someone else comes along and pays to free them at their own cost. In the Greek, the root word means to loose or to free, and the terms use f- um, freeing chains, slavery, or being let out of prison. Sounds a lot like the old life, doesn't it? Now that we understand it in Christ, without God, we are slaves to our fears, to our sins, and to our own helplessness. In Jesus Christ, there is liberation, there is freedom. If we had been left to remain in our sin, we would have deserved nothing more than the condemnation of God. But now our redemption through Jesus has given us forgiveness and love. We would have deserved, left in our sin, nothing but God's condemnation and his just punishment. And that's why I love it when one of my favorite commentators says, fair is hell. God has already given us all the opportunity to be better than fair in Christ. He goes, any more grace above that's just gravy. Any other grace that he gives to us, any other blessings that he gives is just gravy on top of that. Because fair is eternity in hell as human beings. We have failed, we have sinned, and we must pay the price for that. But in Jesus, we've already been given more than fair. He's offered that to all. He's shown us his love and compassion through the Son. And we read this in Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. To all who call on you. How many of us need forgiveness this morning? I'm not talking about salvation either right now. I'm talking about forgiveness of sin, meaning that you failed recently and you need forgiveness this morning. You thought, you know, to use Dr. Seussian language, the things that you shouldn't think, you know, or you have pursued something you should, you've said something you shouldn't have said. You've done something you shouldn't have done. How many of us need forgiveness this morning, right now? We have unconfessed sin in our hearts that we haven't come to the Lord with. This is not a condemnation session. This is an opportunity for us to confess those things and be free again. Because Jesus showed this amazing picture in John chapter 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. Because it's this beautiful picture of Peter thinking this is about salvation. Right? First of all, Peter's appalled that Jesus wants to wash his feet. He says, no way. You know, and Jesus has already washed a few at this point. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, you're not touching my feet. Why? Because Peter loves the Lord, but he misunderstands what Jesus is doing. How many of us are guilty of that? Right? We love the Lord. We totally misunderstand what he's doing. And so God, Jesus very gently says to Peter, he says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. He's not saying you're not saved. He's saying our fellowship is broken if you don't let me wash your feet. Jesus is still making his point. You know, I love that about the Lord. Whenever Jesus is making a point, a lot of times, like, people are like, yeah, but what about the sky? And he's like, stay on target, dude. Like, he, he just hits him right here. 
You know, like even the woman at the well in John 4, I digress, sorry. So back in John 13, as Jesus continues, I mean, that's just another example of when that happens. But in, in John 13, Peter, you know, Jesus looks at him, he says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter says, what? Give me a bath, right? All of me, you know, like just wash me from head to toe, Lord, I'm all in, I'm 100%. And he's like, Peter, still not understanding. He says, you're already clean. He says, but what I'm doing for you, you're about to understand. Let me wash your feet. And he says this, he says, you guys need to be doing this for each other as much as I've done it for you. He gave them a physical example of servitude, and they gave them a spiritual picture of what it's like to go through life as part of each other's cleansing process. It's called accountability. It's called calling each other on our stuff. It's called when we are open and honest with each other, sin starts coming out, and so we start praying for that. We start ministering to that as the body, which means some of you are going to get a big yikes right now, you introverts. You're going to have to know people. You have to get to know people. That's scary stuff. That's scary stuff. I'm an ambivert now, by the way. I used to be 100% extrovert, but I'm finding my, my inner introvert right now. And so, like, I kind of go back and forth. It depends on the mood. How many of you guys go back and forth? It's like, yeah, I can be around people, but not anymore. Okay, no one understands me. That's great. So, if you, if you think about this, this is really scary stuff to expose your life to other people. But in the functionality of the church, it is absolutely essential because we share these three things. We share a, a, a common rescue. We share a common redemption, and we share a common forgiveness. And we are part of that forgiveness process when we confess to each other. For example, and we'll close with this, is James chapter 5. As we think about forgiveness and the part that we play as the church, I just want you guys to understand this. It's, it's funny, a lot of times we get into um, the mindset that I don't know, that I, I'm kind of useless to God, that I'm not needed by God. And, and it's true to say that God doesn't need you, right? God didn't need me to fulfill some part of this great cosmic destiny, right? God doesn't need me to do that. He's invited me to the table. Let that bake your noodle for a while. He's invited me and you and all of us as the church to the table to partake of this, right? But he's also called us to partner with him. What are we supposed to be doing here? What are we called to be? This is very deeply entrenched theology from 2 Corinthians 5. We are his ambassadors, right? We are making the proclamation of God to the world. Be reconciled to God. That's our job. He has entrusted to us this message of reconciliation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And this is the deal. He called us to partner with him in the spreading of his gospel. And so there's things that God expects us to be doing, not only in the world that he's called us to do as Christians, he's called us to get this work done for him. He's empowered us with his Holy Spirit to do it. And part of this is working out the forgiveness of God and the cleansing effect of God within the church amongst ourselves and being part of that process. It's not just out there. It starts in here. This is step one. Being people who proclaim the gospel out there is step two. But in here, and there's more steps probably than that, but I'm just trying to clarify. James chapter 5, you've all been reading and watching your eyes. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 says this. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. We saw this last week. I wouldn't say that this church is full of righteous people. You know, you're like, wow, really, ooh, ooh, you know, your own horn there, Mike, you know, righteous people praying for, you know how God sees us? Righteous, not because of you, not because of me, because of Jesus. He sees us as righteous. So when we pray as submitted believers in Christ, he works. That doesn't mean that our prayers turn into whatever we want them to. It means that God's hand moves according to his will when we call upon him because he's our father and he's good. God answered in a big way last week. That excites me. That's what I want to see God do. I want to see God work. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, he says, and he also says this, therefore, because of all these things, because of James 5, 13 through through 15, verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This has a physical connection, by the way, that some of the stuff that we're going through could be sin-related, not necessarily, but it could be. But it also teaches us this, that the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect and that we need to be open and honest about what we're struggling with with each other. I'm not going to ask every single person in order to come up here and confess their sin to the room, right? This church would have, well, my family would have to come. It would have seven people in it next week, right? But here's what I do expect you guys to be doing. I expect you to have people in this body that you are close with that you are confessing to, that you can be open with. No human being was engineered. We were built by God. No human being was engineered to be an island. We were all created to be in community. We were all created to have accountability, and we need that in our lives. I have guys that are older than me that speak into my life that I talk to about things that I'm struggling with, and they all have permission to correct me. Every single one of them. I make sure, like, in, in throughout the years, whether I was at, you know, Calvary and Rathdrum or, or being here, this will continue. I make sure there's some guys here and there's some guys not here. Because I want guys that don't feel like they have to tell me that I'm doing great just because I'm their pastor. I don't want them having that way. I want guys to be able to tell me, like, you're out of line right now. And be like, fine. You know, but I need to hear that. I need to be able to hear that from people. Prayer is not a magical incantation or a guarantee of healing, but when offered fervently by a righteous person, God will respond in a way that best fits his good purposes. And so we need to be in a place of confession so that God does what he desires and that we're not resisting him. Prayer sinks our heart to his. Prayer does not give you what you want. Prayer sinks our heart to his. And here's the thing. This is all part of a remembrance of rescue, redemption, and forgiveness. This is all part of it. None of us deserve what God has given us. I don't know what the outlook on your life is right now. I don't know if it's negative. I don't know if it's positive. It's one reason why I love James chapter 5, because he kind of covers that. He's like, is any among you suffering? It's time to go to prayer. And he's not saying that cheerful people shouldn't pray. He says, but if you're cheerful, you should start singing. You should start praising God. You should start letting that flow out of you. Start proclaiming that. Is anyone sick? Let people in the church pray over him. He says the elders, and I think that is specific. 
And more important than the oil is the prayer. More important than the oil is the authentic prayer. And so I just want to be really simplistic this morning, you guys. We're going to worship for a little while. We always save the, the, the lion's share of our worship for after the message just for response so you guys can worship and respond as the Lord's leading. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the beauty of being in a room that's more like a home group than an actual church, and this is why I love small group. I want you guys to move around and minister to each other if you need to. Get out of your comfort zone. It'll be good for you. If you need to pray for somebody, if you need to pull someone aside to the back and confess and pray and do that, you can. That's what this is for. If you want to do that after service, that's fine too. Um, But if you want prayer, I want you to get it this morning, and I want you guys to be taking an opportunity to minister to each other because that's what God's called us to do. It's part of this remembrance of forgiveness. It's a part of us remembering who we are, that we've been redeemed. And it's a part of us being real about our struggle currently. We need to remember all that Christ has done, that we have been forgiven. But we need to remember that we're still in a battle here. It's always going to be this way until Jesus returns or until we go to him in glory. Amen? It's going to continue in this. And so let's sharpen the sword in prayer. If people here this morning are cheerful, I want you to worship. If people here this morning are struggling or suffering, I want you to pray. And I want you to share with other people and have them come pray with you. And like I said, it doesn't have to happen in this room, but it needs to be happening in this church because this is just an hour and a half of us being church. All week long is church. We are the church. The church is not this building. The church is a people. The church is a group of people that Christ has called his body that he leads and is the head of. And as body parts that are responding to the leadership of the head, are we properly synchronized with him? So let's worship the Lord this morning. Remember that he rescued us. He's transferred us into his kingdom. He has redeemed us, and he has forgiven us. And let's worship like kids who have been blessed with these things. Let's pray together. Father, as we just thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in our lives, as we remember, Lord, especially this time of year, um, the humility that you showed. I can't, I just can't picture God Almighty, as we'll read in in a future study, Lord, as we continue on in Colossians, the image of the invisible, the creator of all things, Lord, that you became a baby, that you had to trust in human beings to feed you, to care for you. Lord, all of these things are so amazing to think about, and yet, as we consider Jesus who you are, The same Lord that humbled himself in that way that showed that kind of meekness died on a cross for me. Stayed there for me. Father, that you allowed him to remain there even though they were mocking you. God, challenging you. You loved us so much that you refused. You refused to quit until the job was done. Lord, there are so many things about you that we want to be. Lord, right now I pray that we would be those who submit to your will. Lord, that remember all that you've done and that we would just take time to thank you for your forgiveness, to confess sin. Lord, we've fallen short. 
but you have saved us. You have rescued us. You've redeemed us. Let's just take a moment, church, and, and let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Let's just take a moment and as much as we can, quiet your minds, quiet your hearts. Let the Lord speak to you. Let him lead us in this time. Just take a moment to let him do that. Let's not look around the room. This is just for us individually.